Not knowing the outcome of something can be hard, can't it? Like not knowing the outcome of a blood test that you're waiting on, waiting for that phone call from the doctor. Not knowing how you went in an exam. Not knowing whether that guy or girl is interested in you. Not knowing whether you should ask them out on a date or not. Not knowing the outcome of an investigation at work. Not knowing if you'll have work in a year's time. Not knowing why your child is sick. Not knowing if you'll ever get better. Sometimes it's the not knowing that's the hardest. Now this morning we're looking at the book of 1 Samuel. We're back in 1 Samuel 19. It's written 3,000 years ago. We're looking at the life of David And on the outside, things look like they are a complete mess at this stage in David's life. And if you read on from chapter 19, it's only going to get worse over the coming weeks. David is on the run. People are trying to kill him. But the great comfort of these chapters is that David does know the future. Although things seem like they're out of control, whatever David faces in these chapters that we're looking at today and in the next few weeks, as terrible as they are, David can face them confidently because he knows the outcome. Because God has made some promises to David that David will be king. Now as we spin out of 1 Samuel and think about us, we're going to see the confidence that we can have about our future if we're followers of Jesus. But to begin with, let's have a look at David here in 1 Samuel 19 and see the confidence that he has even when he's on the run from Saul. So let's kick it off there in verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Now if you've come in cold on 1 Samuel 19, you won't know who these three people are. Let me quickly remind us. Saul, he is the king of Israel. He's a bad king. He disobeyed God and God has rejected him. We saw that earlier in the year. God told Saul that he's not going to stay king for very long. David, he's good. He's the young man who God has seen into his heart, seen that he has a heart after God, and he has promised David that he will be the new king to replace Saul. And the third character here, Jonathan, He's stuck in the middle because he's Saul's son, but he's friends with David and Saul and David at this point are enemies. Here in chapter 19, Saul orders for David to be killed, but Jonathan stands up for David. It starts in verse 1, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. And then if you notice as we were reading, Jonathan stands up for David and Saul changes his mind. We see it there at the end in verse 6. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So a bit of a turnaround there. Saul wants to kill David. Then he's promising, no, David will not be put to death. So David heads back to live with Saul. Starts fighting in Saul's army again. You might think it will end happily ever after. Although, if you had been reading chapter 18 and chapter 17, which came before these, you'll know that Saul has been changing his mind a lot lately. 
One moment he loves David, the next moment he hates David. It's a bit like Jared Haynes in the NFL. If you're watching that, he doesn't have a great record of consistency. So with Saul here, we're not really sure how things will go. And I think the first big surprise of this chapter comes in verse 9. Because God doesn't leave anything up to chance. God is going to direct Saul. The surprise is that God does not direct Saul to protect David. No, God stirs up Saul to attack David. God makes sure that Saul tries to kill David again. Look there at verse 9. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Now, it turns out, okay, David manages to dodge the spear and escape. But how do you feel when you read verse 9? And an evil spirit or a troubling spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. It sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Surely God would want to protect David here. God has already said that Saul is on the way out and David is the one who will be king. And we know David uh, that God is in control of things here. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. God directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. So if God can direct Saul's heart wherever he pleases, surely he would want to direct Saul's heart to protect David. But no, God directs Saul's heart to attack David. Then God rescues David from Saul's attack, or he allows David to escape. Now, if you're feeling a bit uncomfortable here, I think we're meant to feel a bit uncomfortable here because this is trying to stretch our understanding of what it means that God is in control. Now, as we read on in this chapter, there are going to be four attempts on David's life and four escapes. And by the last escape, it is very clear that God is behind keeping David safe. And I'm, I'm sure we all like that, don't we? God rescues David again and again. That's what God does. He rescues. But here we're seeing that God is also in control of the circumstances that he's rescuing David from. God is in control of the bad as well as the good. Now, fast forward 100 years to Jesus and we see exactly the same truths played out. It's just like in that kid's talk that we just saw. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel, but flip over to Acts chapter 4, or if you'd like, just sit back and listen as I read it. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. It's on your outline there. Acts 4.25 Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now that is a picture of people coming against God's anointed. This is a quote from Psalm 2 which was actually written by David. God's anointed who is being schemed against here. 
in 1 Samuel 19. But Luke is quoting this psalm a thousand years later, and he's applying it to the life of Jesus. Let's read on the very next verse, verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they are the rulers who were overseeing the crucifixion of Jesus, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, those ugly events leading up to the cross where the crowds were shouting, crucify, crucify, and Pilate washed his hands of Jesus' blood and he sentenced Jesus to be crucified. That mess was all part of God's plan. Not just that God allowed it to happen, God caused it to happen. 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Only this time in Acts, it wasn't God's plan to rescue his anointed like it was with King David. It was God's plan for his anointed to be killed, to die in our place, to buy our forgiveness. They did what God had decided beforehand should happen. So there's, a, there's quite a strong link, isn't there, between the events of 1 Samuel 19 and the events of the cross. They are both showing us that God is in control of everything. And that turns out to be the comfort of these chapters. Because think about it. If God was just in control of the good, but not of the evil... Where would the comfort be in that? If evil was some, somehow outside of God's control, if God had no say over evil, how could God bring about anything at all? But what we're seeing here is God is even in charge of David's enemies. Once God makes a promise, there is never any doubt about it, not one single bit of doubt, because God is in control of everything. Now, that's exactly what we're going to see played out in the rest of 1 Samuel 19. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel 19. God has promised that David will be king. Nothing can stop that. And so as we read on in 1 Samuel 19, we get two more escapes. The first one is pretty funny. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. This is the third attempt on David's life in this chapter. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So last, first time it was Saul's son, Jonathan, who rescued David. The second time, Jonathan evaded a spear. This time it's going to be Saul's daughter, Michal. But she doesn't try and talk Saul out of things, no. She tricks her father Saul. Did you notice it as it was read? She lets David out the window, then she puts a dummy in the bed, and when the guards come in, they don't realise that David's gone. Verse 13. Then Michal took an idol, laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment, and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David... Michal said, he is ill. 
So the men go back to Saul's place. They let Saul know that David is sick in bed. Look, I'm not sure why you can't kill a sick guy. Maybe that's bad manners. But anyway, Saul tells these guys, go back there, you idiots. Bring the whole bed back to me with David in it so I can kill David myself. Verse 15. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. This reminds me of a prank they played back in university days where in the middle of the night they picked up this guy's bed while he was asleep in it and very carefully moved it out into the middle of the footy field. He didn't realise what happened till he woke up in the middle of the oval in his bed. Here Saul's soldiers head back to David's house to grab his bed to take it back to Saul But when they get there, it's not David in the bed at all. Verse 16. When the men entered, there was the idol in the bed. And at the head was some goat's hair. This is meant to be a bit funny. The great King Saul has been fooled by his own daughter. Saul's men are running back and forwards between Saul's house and David's house. There's goat hair in the bed. Meanwhile, David has taken off all the way to Rama, which is three or four kilometres up the road. He's escaped again. Now, what's real interesting is that even though really there's no direct mention of God's hand in all of this, during this very time, David wrote Psalm 59. And in Psalm 59, it gives us an insight into what David was thinking about this whole situation. And he knows God is in control. Again, keep your finger in 1 Samuel 19, you've got the idea. But let's have a quick look at Psalm 59. Skip forward to Psalm 59. Psalm 59, and this little heading, it's actually originally uh, written by the author of the psalm, David. So these, are, these haven't been added in by the editors of the Bible. Psalm 59, for the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy, appropriate choice of tune, of David. So David wrote this, Amit Khan. When did David write it? When Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. In other words, this psalm is about that very night in 1 Samuel that we've just read about, where Saul and his men are outside waiting to attack David. Have a look at David's attitude in all of this. He completely trusts God. Verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers, And save me from bloodthirsty men. Mind you, David has every reason to be scared. Read on. Verse 3. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me. Verse 6. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, prowling around the city. See what they spew from their mouths. See, these are Saul's men outside the door waiting to kill David the next morning. Now look at how David sees things, or more importantly, look at how God sees things. Verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at these nations. That's exactly what's happening in 1 Samuel, isn't it? 
God is making a mockery. He's laughing at Saul. David escapes out the window. Saul is left with an idol and some goat's hair. When David is under God's protection, nothing can hurt him. Verse 9. O my strength, I watch for you. You, O God, are my fortress. You, O God, are my fortress. Now we see that played out most clearly in this last scene of 1 Samuel 19. Back to 1 Samuel 19. Again, for a fourth time, Saul sends men after David, but it doesn't work. Look at what happens. Verse 19. Word came to Saul. David is at Naoth at Ramah. So Saul sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel, standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also prophesied. Do you get the picture here? Saul is sending soldiers to kill David, but it's as if there's a force field around David and the moment the soldiers get near David, they start prophesying. Okay, They're armed with their shields and their swords, but they start dancing around and singing. It's meant to be funny. Saul sends more men and more men, and the same thing happens. Verse 21, Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Eventually, Saul has to go up there himself. And when Saul arrives to kill David himself, God's spirit comes on Saul. But Saul doesn't just prophesy, oh no. There's a bit more that goes on with Saul. When the Spirit of God comes on Saul, Saul takes off all his clothes. He lays down stark naked and he prophesies all day and all night. Now, if you've got an NIV Bible, it's the G-rated version, but other Bibles actually tell us that Saul took off all his clothes and he's lying there naked all night. Let's pick it up in verse 23. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. That's where David is. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all day and all night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Okay, it became a bit of a joke. God has completely humiliated Saul. The king of Israel is lying there naked on the grass. Four times he's tried to kill David. Four times he's failed. God is in complete control because nothing in this world comes anywhere near to being a threat to God fulfilling his promises. God has promised David will be king and God will make that happen. And that's why in that psalm, David can have such confidence. But what does all that mean for us? Because we're not in the same situation as David. David had a direct promise from God that he will be king. I don't think any of us have a promise from God that we will be the king of Israel. Anyone? Didn't think so. But we do have other promises. We do have promises made to us even better than this promise to David. Let's leave 1 Samuel 19 there, but turn with me to Romans 8. 
Because I think Romans 8 is our Psalm 57. Romans 8 is our comfort when things around us look bad. Romans 8 speaks of our confidence and our security. Romans 8. Let's pick it up in verse 28. And this is talking about the confidence that followers of Jesus, people who've thrown their life in with Jesus, the confidence that they can have. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is in control of everything. And God is working in everything for our good. Which means ultimately, as a follower of Jesus, we know the outcome. When Jesus returns, he is bringing in a perfect new creation where there's no more death and no more crying and no more pain. And God promises here that right now in the present, he is working everything out according to that plan. See, God's definition of of working for our good, it's not about our immediate happiness now. God's definition of good is not that we get everything we want like a spoilt toddler. God's definition of good is that we become more like him and that one day we get to enter into a new creation, a perfect world with him forever. God's definition of good is that we know him now and into eternity. And if you're a follower of Jesus, nothing can stop that. That's why this passage is a comfort for us today, because we see that God is at work in all things in David's life, even in the opposition. See, some people think that God is only in control when good things happen. Like when I get a car park, when I'm running late, and boom, there's the car park right out the front of the shop. Praise God. That's God's blessing. But when I don't get a car park, somehow God is less at work in that. That's not how God works. God is intricately involved in everything in this world. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. So God is every bit as in control when you don't get a parking space as when you do. God is every bit in control when someone dies of cancer as when someone's healed. God is every bit in control when Jesus was crucified as when he was raised from the dead. Now, if God was only in control of the good things, he wouldn't be in control. My life is full of stuff that's messy and disappointing and frustrating. Does that mean that things are outside of God's control? No. We know that in all things, 
God works for the good of those who love him. That includes cancer. That includes sickness. That includes family problems. That includes when people reject Jesus. That includes when people do bad things to us. That includes mental illness. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. The bottom line is, if you are trusting Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Let me read with the rest of Romans 8 from verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in 1 Samuel we get a bit of a picture into how enormous your sovereignty is. That in David's life, you're not just in control of rescuing him, but you're in control of Saul. You are in control of everything. And Father, thank you that in David's trust of you, we have a model of the trust that Jesus had, but we also have a model of how we can trust you. Father, thank you that you always come through on your promises. Father, thank you that in everything you work for our good. And please help us to trust that when life is hard. Whatever it is this morning, Father, in our lives and each other's lives that is causing us to doubt or hurt at the moment, please, by your spirit, remind us that you are in control. Please comfort us. Please give us confidence as we look forward to Jesus' return. Please give us courage to honour him and live for him. Amen.